Welcome to Small Bites, the weekly equity podcast for busy people, where you'll get strategies in five minutes at 5 a.m. to help you become a more culturally literate, responsive, and culturally responsible educator. Join me throughout the week at Hedrick or at Hedrick Nichols on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. See you Mondays at 5 a.m. Hello and happy summer. As you know, Small Bites is actually on hiatus until fall. However, I ran into an amazing award-winning author, Sarah Fetterman, and her article in Market Watch in which she talks about corporations and how they can atone for um, past connections to enslavement just enthralled me. So that I thought it would be great to have a conversation with her and to put it out for Juneteenth as we have those kinds of greater conversations. I hope you enjoy my talk with Sarah and you can come back next week and the week after to listen to parts two and three of the series. As you know, I usually don't do a lot of interviews, but I got lucky and I found this wonderful, amazing writer. And this, I just, out of the blue, I said, okay, I'm going to send her a contact list, a contact form. And she said, yes, I am going to let Sarah introduce herself, tell you a little bit about, about her work. But before, I would also like to um, tell you my land acknowledgments. Small Bites respectfully acknowledges that Wichita, Kickapoo, and affiliated nations have lived on these lands where the studio is located. Small Bites further recognizes the historical and ongoing presence of the Caddo and other nations in the area, including those displaced and forced here by nationally sanctioned Indian relocation programs. All right, Sarah, take it away. Thank you. Thank you for this invitation. I was so glad you reached out. I I teach a negotiate, well, I was teaching a negotiation class in Baltimore where I challenged students to make crazy requests. And that was a great crazy request just to reach out and last minute um, to get an interview, um, a chance to talk together. So my name is Sarah Fetterman. I am um, now going to be a professor of a um, conflict resolution at the Croc School of Peace Studies in San Diego. And just a little, because this is related to what we'll be talking about, I had a a career as an international advertising executive first. Um, First in Manhattan, um, those people who have seen Mad Men, but I was not in the 60s, but it was still that location, um, and then was transferred to Paris, where I saw the impact of the world wars and decided I wanted to use my education and time to prevent um, genocide uh, and mass harm to all, all peoples and got involved with atonement issues like how do we how do we atone in the aftermath to irreparable harm i got a job in baltimore and my students said hey this is really interesting all about world war ii and the holocaust but what about us and so they encouraged me to look into issues about slavery which i have been doing recently and um that's what led to this. So the Holocaust, I wrote a book called Last Train to Auschwitz, the French National Railways and the Journey to Accountability, which is um, out on paperback next week. Um, and it won a Nautilus Award, a silver award for investigative journalism and reporting for books that do good. So I hope it does good. <laughs> We've had some um, some interesting things pop up in the news about people who are on different sides of the the, the Holocaust, whether it really happened and facts. And so I hope that it gets a lot of press and I will definitely recommend it to my friends. <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah, my son, my son is half German. So it's a common oh. conversation in our home because his grandfather actually served. It was either, and you know, to hear it firsthand, it wasn't, oh, these Nazis, these evil people. 
I saw a sad and broken man who talked about having his sister getting blackballed on the radio because they were not following the rules. And then he had to either serve or have his family in uh, be harmed. Right. And those, those are the the real things that we think about. It's easy to say that they're bad guys and that was awful thing that happened. But when you talk about the individuals that had to do those things, you know, how many of us would give up our families in order to, you know, say, Nope, Nope, just kill us all. And so we're not going to do that. So it talks about, you know, I think about advocate, you know, advocacy and, and what that can mean on a very personal level, which I had, I was confronted with. And I, I'm so glad you shared that because my husband and I, because we got inspired about this too, wrote a a book that's coming out this summer called narratives of mass atrocity. And the idea is victims and perpetrators in the aftermath that it's actually much more complicated on the ground, you Mm -hmm. know, and a number of the Holocaust survivors told me they, it could have happened anywhere. It happened to happen in Germany, but you know, it could have happened and, you know, could happen in the United States or could happen other places. And it's so easy to judge in the aftermath when we don't have a gun to our heads and our family aren't going to be deported. Um, But it's hard to know what any German young man would have done. You know, if you're just born male and you're in Germany at that time, like you would have ended up in, you know, in the military. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's funny because I think also um, I think of Martin Luther King and we when we celebrate Martin Luther King Day and Juneteenth, those those issues come up. And I I remember seeing the picture this year of him lying and bleeding out after he got shot. And I remember thinking, you know, if I was Coretta Scott King, I would have rather not have an advocate. (laughs) You know what I mean? If if it meant that I had to raise my kids alone and be widowed and see that picture every, you know, back in my, I I think I would have chosen to not have him be the leader of the civil rights movement, you know, Mm -hmm. that, and so like I said, those things, those, those, those issues Mm -hmm. are so much more complicated on the Mm -hmm. ground. So I'm glad there are people like you doing work about conflict resolution and talking about it in, in larger communities, as opposed to just marriages or families or schools or staffs, but in in, corporations and, and, and governments, because, the we can't just keep reliving the same kinds of conflicts and expect us to get healthy i want to say at yeah. some point yeah yeah and you know you're you mentioned briefly um before we we started recording though about your book on othering which i'm so glad to hear that you wrote because that's really the dynamics when when i that's what we want to talk about and and it doesn't matter to me whether people study the holocaust and um in fact, a Holocaust survivor grabbed my arm during an event. She was slumped uh, in a wheelchair. She had survived Auschwitz. She grabbed my arm and she said, my name is Hannah. I've survived Auschwitz and my, st- my son studies the Holocaust and my daughter doesn't, but it doesn't matter. She said, what matters is that you're good. You're a good person, good to Jew, good to non-Jew. And then she dropped my arm. She slumped into her wheelchair and never said another word. She just like wanted to pass this message. And, and it really stuck with me, right? It's, it's not about getting people to read this book or study this moment in history, but like, if you just cannot other other people, <laughs> right? Like that would be a great start. Let's start there. And then we could, you know, and history can help us with that. So I think history is important, but sometimes to me, it's, it's less that I like need people to know about a particular moment. I just want us to find another way of being with each other. Period. Yeah. I, that my, the first chapter in my book is all about belonging. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly one of the things that I talk about. Simply think about how you other 
your sisters and brothers or the cousin mm. or that certain in-law or, you know, we always draw circles around our groups. And if we would do that less, I mean, even in, in, in terms of mass shooting, if yeah. we would do, you know, those people always feel isolated. Shooters always feel isolated. What could we have done better? You know, in those classrooms, in those churches, in those youth baseball team leagues, yeah. what could we have done to not produce a person that felt so isolated and against humanity that that's what they did. And so, yeah. If, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I just read an article in The Nation this morning about young people who've been um, affected by these shootings saying that that's what they want in their schools. They're asking for the restorative approaches. They're asking for more school counselors. They're asking for those kinds of support services because they understand. They know these kids who end up doing it. You know, and they, and they see that need for help. So and the article, I think, was called like, listen to your kids, listen to the kids. Let's listen to what they have to say about it, because they it's, they know mm -hmm. that's my hope. That's my hope. When I see where we are right now, it makes me feel hopeless often, mm. you know, de de yeah, desperate and desolate. Mm. And when I think of the students that I've taught, they give me hope. And the things that I see them writing and posting and they give me so much hope. We feed each other. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we'll get to the to the to the to the nitty gritty. The sure. one thing I wanted to ask to start off with is when per, when people talk about enslavement and emancipation, there's all always this feeling of let the past stay in the past. And I'm saying enslavement because tomorrow is Juneteenth, or the when you listening or listening to this, it is Juneteenth. Um, but I'll, I'm also thinking that about the Holocaust, for example, about, you know, indigenous mass genocide, all of those things, oh, well, that's in the past. Why might this line of thought pose challenges to any kind of progress, financial, yeah. cultural? It's such a great question. And I actually had it myself <laughs> because with the Holocaust, it was a little bit easier. I interviewed 90 Holocaust survivors. They were alive. I could see how the past lived in their day to day. I could see, you know, they were telling me about never being able to get through the night without having nightmares. You know, you could see the trauma. You could see the effect on their families, you know, and then I could say, OK, well, there's living survivors. So that's a little bit easier. Right. You can say, all right, well, there's living people who've been harmed. But the challenge with slavery and indigenous issues and issues having to do with uh, colonialism, harm through colonialism, is that no, there's no living survivors. So people think it seems like a long time ago. And I, I understand that because you're like, God, it seems like a long time ago. But I think what I've learned and where I was wrong is that the past actually lives in the present. And that living in Baltimore helped me see and studying the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow and really the caste kind of apartheid system that we've had in the country and, and still have in kind of invisible, you know, way, way and not legal ways, but it still kind of exists. We can see it in incarceration rates and access to healthcare and student loan debt. We can, and COVID morbidity, you know, specifically into the nitty gritty. So when you start to look at those lines and people who've been tracing those lines and the hard data, it's not that the past is in the past. Like we're actually living, <laughs> living it out still. Um, and we need to then close that gap, right? And, and to start to address those issues in the present. It's not about going and pleasing the ghosts, although that in some cultures that is important. And I think you need to acknowledge, you know, in different communities that that belief and that the, the souls are suffering does need to be acknowledged and maybe they are, um, but there's a lot we can also do in the present to acknowledge that past harm. I think that's, that's super important. Um, we talk about um, it being a long time ago. 
And one of my big, the hallmarks of any, anybody who's ever heard me speak has heard this story. And I'll tell it one more time in case there are new listeners. I am the first generation of post Jim Crow babies. Wow. And I know all the TikTok dances. <laughs> that condenses the timeline because you don't think of those two things together. Yeah. When you think of Jim Crow, you think of black and white and sapia pictures. But no, I am, I was born in a Negro hospital. Wow. And, um, I mean, look at the skin, you know what I mean? This is not, I mean, I'm not, and my, I was raised in a multi-generational household. My great-grandmother was born in 1892 or three. We're never quite sure because they didn't take good census records in the black neighborhoods at Opelousas back in those days. But she was born, she she said 1893, that's what she'd always said. And um, all of the stories that she knew about enslavement were stories that she heard firsthand. Wow. I have chills. And those are actually, I mean, people have studied the way transgenerational trauma works. Some of it does seem to even perhaps be biological, but then the stories that are passed down do have an impact. Like in my stories, stories of the Holocaust passed down in your family, you were hearing from someone who heard directly and that passes down as well, as well as the inequalities that everybody had to live out along the way and the ways in which they weren't allowed to acquire wealth or status um, throughout their lives. Let's talk about that, because I think that's something that when you talk about, we talk about let the past be in the past. When you talk about those lines and you talk about people not being able to acquire wealth, I know that you've done a lot of work in uh, with with corporate ties to mass atrocities. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, and I again, it's thanks to Baltimore um, and, and the students there and understanding the way that redlining worked to worked <laughs> in the sense of keeping black families from being able to get mortgages. It left them with these very um, fragile contracts that if they missed like a payment for just like a day or they changed this amount small and then they, they used it to take their land away. And so there was just ways in which families couldn't like, they were often unbanked and the banks they were using were not favorable to them. And there were ways in which the communities just couldn't couldn't build, literally couldn't build wealth the way white families could. And of course, Tulsa, um, we know about um, the black middle class there that was rising. And then a a mob came, took it all from them and burned it down. And so that has happened um, again and again and in different different forms. So it leads to the way it shows up today is um, often distrust of banks, sometimes in the black community, which is understandable because there's a lot of fodder for distrusting banks, but it also means missing out on the compounding interest. And so when I was teaching in Baltimore, I had financial experts come in and teach the students about how that worked um, because a number had grown up with being told like, when you get bills, throw them away. And when collections calls hang up or, you know, they didn't, they didn't know how to handle it. And so it was worsening the problem. So um, those kinds of those kinds of things, but you know, redlining more and more is talking about talking about that. Um, the other one that's really uh, on my heart is this. Join me, Hedrick Nichols, when I talk to Sarah Fetterman for another special summer edition of Small Bites, as we talk about real ways we can respond to the harm done to communities where our past is still living in our present. See you next week for part two. Like, subscribe, follow, leave a great review. And check the show notes and hedger.com for more resources. 